Hello and welcome to episode 250 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we're caught in the middle of the human-AI conflict in our review of Gareth Edwards' futuristic epic, The Creator. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm good. I'm in the middle of it. Scott, I told you that if I told you that The Creator was six movies ago, what would you what would you respond? I don't even know if I can remember anything that happened in the film. Who knows? It could be a fun day. Yeah, no, uh, just don't mix it up with any details from, say, The Boy and the Heron and accidentally spoil that movie. For I was going to say Foe. That's, like that's like the other sci-fi. That's like the that's more the sci-fi compliment. movie. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, that one's coming out fairly soon from, from what I understand. So you, true. you could be safe there. But um, yeah, we that's why we have a good editor. And by that, I mean you um, in, in case... Yeah. Def, definitely not overworked editor, although not overworked on this podcast, but overworked, <laughs> yeah, maybe overworked yeah. by other departments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, just add another thing to the the plate. I know it's not full for you, but uh, sure. but yeah, you're yeah. in the middle of New York Film Fest, which is what you were going to say, I believe. Yeah, no, in the middle of New York Film Festival. Um, I haven't thought a lot about like, r- like comparing movies that I've like, like really comparing movies that I've seen recently. But as a teaser, I would say most of the films I saw at the New York Film Festival this weekend better than the creator. So that's not necessarily yet a statement about the creator. We'll get into our thoughts in just a few minutes. But I think it is a compliment to all the movies that I'm seeing at the New York Film Festival so far. And I'll talk a little bit more about maybe some of those movies in the second part of today's episode. But yeah, in the middle of it, I had the luxury of spending all weekend with with friend of the podcast, Paulo Yama, as we saw our movies together, which was a lot of fun. He left uh, earlier today, but, you know, I think he was saying something like, you know, maybe I'll kill you and take your tickets to all the other movies that I'm getting to miss because I have to leave right now instead of staying to the rest of the New York Film Festival. But so far, he has not returned to my apartment to murder me. So that is good. And don't worry, because he's Paul Oyama, he's already uh, buying up tickets for AFI Fest. So he was last night when we were back in the apartment after uh, after the New York Film Festival, he was looking at the schedule and planning out his AFI Fest. So. What a life he lives. What a life he lives. Sure. Um, Man's got priorities and we respect them, you know? Yeah. Uh, Scott, you know, you obviously were at the New York Film Festival. I had a little bit of an eventful time as well. Uh, for the second year in a row, went to the All Things Go Music Festival in um, just outside Washington, D.C., Columbia, Maryland. Um, actually just went to one day. It was a two-day festival this year as opposed to last year. Um only got tickets for the first day that the demand was insane this year. It sold out in about five minutes, um, mainly due to Lana Del Rey and Boy Genius being the headliners on Sunday. Um, but Saturday had a bunch of great artists as well. Um, and my girlfriend and I went and saw Maggie Rogers, Carly Rae Jepsen, Lizzie McAlpine. Uh, we saw Scott star of, among other um, properties, uh, The Bad Batch, Suki Waterhouse. We saw her in concert. Um, okay. Yeah, she has a music music career. Um, we were joking because she came out in like these sunglasses and like this like brown velvet suit that was just way too large on her. And she never took the sunglasses off. She never referenced where she was. She never even said all things go. And we were saying that we were pretty sure that she did not know where she was uh, probably in performing that show and just kind of had this whole too cool for school vibe, which is was kind of funny to see, but also is, is very reminiscent of Karen, which is the character that she plays on Daisy Jones and the Six, um, which is, is um, 
primarily this year. Was Robert Pattinson there since he's not acting in anything right now? No Robert Pattinson sightings um, at the festival. However, last night, apparently during Muna's set, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, was seen backstage uh, watching the Muna concert. So there you go. Um, Cool. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I will say they definitely oversold like the the venue this year because there were just an absurd amount of people there, even more than last year. The lines for everything, what took you like 40 minutes just to fill up your water bottle, basically, Uh, even more than that if you wanted food. So uh, I think they need to find a new venue for it next year. Um, And I don't know if I'll be attending just because it was it was quite hectic, Uh, but still still some great music, still a fun time nonetheless. So what what was the key issue? Just like there there wasn't there's like just too many capacity problems. Like what was the deal? Yeah, I mean, so there's a second stage um, opposite the main stage, and that stage is basically a, a whole, it's all pit. The, the main stage is a pavilion with a lot of seating under it and a small pit area at the front, and then the, the GA lawn is like behind the pavilion. Then, like on the other side of the, you know, venue, the whole campus of this thing, you have a second stage, which is all pit and it goes up like goes pretty far back and then up onto the top of this hill basically well that pit was completely full all day um for the second stage um completely full all day and like we wanted to see lizzie mcalpine for example and we could not get within a mile of that stage probably like it was we could not even get close Um, And so we just decided to stay at the main stage because they would in between sets, they would show the other stage sets on the screen. So we ended up just watching her set on the screen. But it was, you know, in addition to the lines for like the bathrooms, the food, the water, everything being absurdly long. um, The fact that the second stage, you basically just had to get there at not at 11 a.m. when the gates open and just stand there the entire time if you wanted to see anyone at that stage so i think the demand this year um you know was was more perhaps than they were they were prepared for um but anyway probably not uh interested that interesting for our listeners to hear unless you attended the festival or were thinking about attending the festival uh we should probably get instead to what we came here to do scott which is to review our film today the creator the first film in seven years from director gareth edwards Set in the year 2070, 15 years after an artificial intelligence created by the U.S. government unleashes a nuclear strike on Los Angeles, the creator follows Sergeant Joshua Taylor, played by John David Washington, a former undercover U.S. operative who lost his wife, Maya, played by Jimma Chan, after another nuclear strike. This one caused by the USS Nomad, a weaponized space station developed by the U.S. Army to combat the AI-friendly nation of New Asia. Early in the film, Taylor is approached by Army officers Andrews and Howell, played by Ralph Innocent and Allison Janney, about a new mission to locate and destroy a supposed super weapon which is being developed by Nermada, the mysterious entity behind the AI advancements in New Asia, and the same entity which Taylor was investigating undercover years ago. At first, Taylor is uninterested, but then the officers drop a bombshell video footage showing that Maya is still alive, and they promise to Taylor that Maya will be rescued if he helps them locate the superweapon. 
Taylor agrees, but upon investigation is shocked to discover that the weapon is in fact a robotic young girl who has the ability to control all technology remotely. The girl is Alfie, played by Madeline Univoyles, and after Taylor finds himself unable to carry out the army's request to kill her, the two form an uneasy alliance as they try to avoid the pursuing nomad and locate Maya and Nirmata themselves. Scott is Edward's follow-up from Rogue One, a win for fans of original genre filmmaking, or does this sci-fi epic demonstrate the difficulty of crafting a blockbuster film from scratch? I think maybe a little bit of both, honestly. I think I think it's kind of a little column A, a little column B. I think one of the really remarkable things about this film is that I was pretty engaged in the world. Like this whole concept, it is set a little bit in the future. Maybe just because AI and and you know generative AI and learning and machines and machine learning thing, all those things are very relevant in popular culture in the mainstream media today. Like something that's constantly being talked about as we really press forward and innovate in that space, especially in the last like six to six to twelve months. And so it feels, even though this film's been you know obviously in production for several years, it felt very relevant in that sense, and especially like especially relevant in that sense, I should say. And therefore, I really did feel engaged. And, and I think that there's there was a lot in the concept. That said, I think the film maybe gets sort of weighed down a little bit, ultimately, by the fact that this is an original IP and it's having to tell a full story that sometimes, frankly, it feels more epic than the movie really can contain, I think is, is fair to say. And if you think about sort of like the the comp or the equivalent to what we're seeing in sort of the similar like hard sci-fi action space right now. Dune is obviously the first thing that comes to mind. Maybe there's some others as well. But Dune has the luxury of telling its story. One book, the what the and that is a source material, of course, this film doesn't really have as much source material, I don't think. I think it's based off of is it based off anything? No, no, it's original. It's an original. It's yeah, totally I think original. It's totally original. Yeah, yeah totally original. But Dune obviously has luxury of being made across two movies, made across known IP, potentially even three movies they're talking about now, of course. So it, it just feels like a lot of the success stories that we could we could point to in today, like don't have the original tag necessarily hit to it. I can think of some examples of like other sci-fi movies, but they're telling much, much smaller stories where they manage to maintain the scale of their movie. But ultimately, this is an epic war film, really, at the end of the day. And it's told over a long period of time with not an ensemble cast of characters, but you're meeting a lot of people along the way. It feels very, I mean, it feels very episodic. I mean, the str it's structured into like three or four parts, I believe. And I was grateful that the film was not three plus hours long. But it, at two hours and ten minutes-ish, especially towards the end of the film, it really felt like things were rushed or came together too quickly and didn't really totally make sense. And some of the characters, maybe even a little paper thin at times. I, I think that it's, it's, there was a lot of promising. There's a lot to really, I actually think there's quite a bit to like about this movie at the same time on the, on the other side of that coin. I feel like there's evidence that it's really hard to create original science fiction and turn that into the screen in a way that feels like really gargantuan and, and seismic. And I think the modern day examples that we can quickly point to are stories told over multiple films, two or more films. So it sort of was at a disadvantage in that 
obviously this film is never going to get greenlit for two parts. I mean, it's a, it's a miracle probably only by a function of Netflix that Zack Snyder gets to make his rebel moon movie across two parts, right? Like it, the notion that that film would be, you know, made in two parts, original IP granted a more prominent filmmaker than Gareth Edwards, but it, it just sort of seems very unlikely that that would get to happen for most filmmakers with an original science fiction IP. I mean, who even knows how good rebel moon is going to be, but it's, it's a curiosity. Gareth Edwards wasn't really sort of given that luxury. But I think that this sort of shows that the nuts and bolts or maybe the bones of this are there. And he seems super capable. I mean, the film is absolutely gorgeous. I think one of the one of the most notable things about the film is that this film is made for $80 million. And it, they he managed to contract some of the greatest, you know, <laughs> cinematographers like in with Greg Frazier, like sorry, Greg Frazier, the guy who's making the Dune movies, who did the Batman. Like these people are very skilled cinematographers. Uh, he, did, I guess, Greg Frazier is technically the co-cinematographer on this one. Oren Sofer, who a uh, man, I'm not that name, I'm not as familiar with. Um, but that, w- and then you get Hans Zimmer, who obviously is also doing the scores for Dune. Like, there's a lot of extremely talent, like creative talent here that has been very successful in in this space, in this very specific space. And they made the film for a fraction of the cost that we're seeing most sci-fi fantasy superhero movies these days. And Scott, I can't really think of a moment where I'm like, hmm, that doesn't look good in the movie. All this stuff looked amazing in this film. So it just sort of makes you wonder why movies can't be better at the cost they're made for. But uh, that's like a recurring conversation that we don't need to beat a dead horse on. Like it's not even worth it. I don't even think it's a talking worth really worth spending that much time on. But it's certainly something that I thought about when I was leaving the movie because I have some complaints. We'll get into those about the film. But certainly how the aesthetic and how it looked was not one of them. Yeah, no, it definitely does make you think a lot about that. Um, And, you know, we we have talked about that a lot in the past and um, how maybe the, the timelines are one of the big factors as to why you know these 300 400 million dollar movies look like junk a lot of the time nowadays um and what whereas gareth edwards you know seemingly had a lot more time to put as much care and effort sure. into crafting every inch of this film as he wanted and making sure that every cent of that um 80 million dollars went a long way um so you know that's it's just kind of crazy right because like this is still disney disney's still making the one making this movie it's kind of wild to me right like obviously it's outside of the marvel star wars of it all and Mm -hmm. movies outside that sphere probably can just be created like they are different production units i understand that it's not like just because it's a disney movie it it feeds through the same pipeline but it's kind of crazy i mean it's just kind of funny to think about that (laughs) the fact that it's this is still a disney movie like this is eventually going to be on hulu or or whatever, wherever they decide. I mean, I assume they wouldn't put this on on Disney Plus, but you know, it's going to be on Hulu. It's going to be on could be. Max. I PG believe. thirteen. So I could see it. Yeah, maybe that's true. <clears throat> but it, it also, I guess, has the luxury of even though it is futuristic, and there certainly are many futuristic elements to the film. It's largely set in rural areas that you know you don't have to use. They, mm-hmm. they I presume they weren't using CGI for the entire movie because they're shooting so much in like I mean, I don't know on location where they're filming, but you know, it's like, it look, the film looks like it's set in Thailand or something, like something of that ilk, right? Like something it's not Blade Runner, right? Like it's exactly, not, exactly. Know, or any, or frankly, cities. any of the Marvel movies that are set, you know, yeah. in futuristic like cities or in space, like it does have that luxury. 
to to be able to shoot not necessarily on a on a stage or on a on a on a sound stage for a good portion of the film. So it does have that sort of benefit to to enable it whereas you can't really do that with a Marvel movie at this point. The way that yeah. the, the the landscapes are are crafted are especially in the in the intergalactic movies. It's not really possible to do. So and uh, you know it's clear that Gareth Edwards is is a gifted director too. I mean, we both are big fans of Rogue One. You know, it's unclear yeah, how definitely. much he had to do with that movie, but he was the one who got his name on the the movie at the end of the day. So, um, and you can definitely look. You can there. definitely see that Gareth Edwards had a lot to do because, yeah. uh, look, Nomad looks a lot like that little thing over Scarif in Rogue One. Mm-hmm. So clearly, the, the man has Rogue One in his mind. Yeah, and a lot of like the police robots and stuff like that look like they could be something out of Star Wars. Like that, sure. you know, the, there's some of the designs of stuff is very reminiscent of Star Wars. But um, I guess that's just any sort of planetary type epic that you have nowadays is just naturally probably going to evoke Star Wars. But um, but yeah, no, this film is very well crafted, and um, that I think is the the best thing to recommend it by. I'm I'm glad, you know, to to your point, I'm glad that this movie exists because this is the type of movie which we've talked about before, you know, may stop getting made. It's not so much like the small independent movies. Um, It's this like mid budget quote unquote, what would have been a blockbuster movie in another era, but now has no IP attached to it. Nothing, you know, recognizable really for um, audiences to latch onto. And I don't know how the movie's doing, but I don't think it's doing that great. Probably, I think it made um, fifteen million domestically opening yeah. weekend. Um, so this is the type of movie which is, you know, in in five ten years, who knows whether these these movies are going to be getting made anymore. Um, so it's nice to see one of them now, um, and, and I certainly hope that we continue to see movies like this. Um, I do think that the movie, though. Falls a little bit flat for me um, outside of the the technical craft department, um, which I agree with you again is is impeccable. I loved the score by Hans Zimmer. It was trying its best to get me to feel something at the end of this movie, and unfortunately, the other elements of the movie just didn't quite cooperate there to actually make me have an emotional response, which I think is one of the big, you know, um, shortcomings of the movie is that I never really got on board with the emotional through line of this movie, which, you know, is largely centered around the relationship between uh, John David Washington's Taylor and um, the young girl Alfie, and also sort of the role, obviously, that John David Washington's wife, that Gemma Chan, who's only, you know, not in the movie very much, but very briefly in the movie, um, that they have, that's that's sort of the the heart of the movie. And I think there's just it's just a little thin. There's there's not enough there. I think maybe to your point, they spent a little bit too much time or, or you know more time on building the world, you know, telling us what everything is and and just trying to set everything up um, because this is the first movie and and nobody comes into this with any pre-existing you know knowledge of what this is um, that. You know, some of the some of the emotional storytelling, some of the character work falls by the wayside a little bit, unfortunately. Totally, totally agree. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just didn't really care about the relationship between um, John David Washington and his wife. I mean, 
we get so little of it, right? We get a brief scene towards the beginning, right before we see like the nuclear attack that, you know, allegedly kills her. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, it's just a very brief interaction between the two of them. We don't get a sense of what their relationship was like. And eventually, obviously, we learn that he was, he married her basically as part of his undercover operation, right? Like he's investigating her as being the, um, the, the daughter of this Nirmata figure. And, you know, as part of his cover, it seems he, he marries her and, you know, obviously the movie wants us to believe and, and John David Washington's character, you know, tells you basically that, you know, he, he does, he does actually fall for her, right? He does actually have feelings for her. He does love her. It's not just an op. But the movie is is has to tell us that, right? Like I was gonna say, yeah, it tells it tells that. you yeah. that. It does you don't really get yeah. that at all. Um, and so that's that's obviously a shortcoming. And you know, I, I guess I cared a little bit more about the relationship between him and, and Alfie, but just not not too much, honestly. Um th- there's still not a whole lot there. I mean, I, I almost do wish they had the benefit of, you know, another film or something like that, so that they there could have been a little more fleshing out of some of this stuff. I mean, I do think the performances are are pretty good in the movie. I, I didn't have a huge issue with um, the two leads with, with John David Washington uh, or um, the actress that plays the young girl, Madeline Univoyles. Um, but, you know, I think the, the screenplay is just what lets them down here, unfortunately. So I think that's, um, you know, that's my overall issue with the movie um it it does feel a little boring at times i guess um not not you know not as much perhaps as i would have expected for me going into this you know sort of this very self-serious long epic sci-fi movie um but it's not that long though right it's like it's actually not that long of a film i mean yeah yeah it's not epic length it is two hours and 15 minutes which i consider sort of like 210 but... like right at the press okay well i consider that like right at the precipice of being a sure. long film but sure I, um, i'd agree i'd agree with that yeah i think that um it, it does have a few places where it, it drags and yeah the ending isn't super satisfying again as much as hans zimmer is trying to tell you um that oh yes you, you should be feeling a lot of things and then i think the other issue scott you know you bring up that this movie is about AI in some regards. I mean, you know, it, it has AI has a large role to play, and obviously the movie was probably written years ago, as you said, and couldn't necessarily have predicted the current moment that we're at with, in terms of artificial intelligence. But I just don't think the movie has anything to say about that, you know, a, about the issue of AI. And it had the opportunity to be, to say something timely. Uh, because it is such an of the moment hot button issue, and there haven't been a lot of films in the current moment to to tackle it. And I think it just kind of eschews any sort of commentary on AI for this more straightforward, you know, good guys, bad guys. You know, the army is are are generally portrayed as sort of these jingoistic figures who you know are are kind of just colonizing this new Asia, and um, just trying to destroy everything in its path um, because, uh, you know, as sort of this act of revenge, I guess. Um, 
and the AI are largely are, are largely portrayed as uh, you know a peaceful people. At least that's the way that we come to see them. At least the people of New Asia. Um, and so, you know, the movie is taking a side in that regard, but it doesn't really have anything, you know, again, con uh, constructive to say. I think about the relationship between human beings and AI and it feels like a missed opportunity considering what a big issue that is right now. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if constructive is the way that I would describe it. So if, if we're getting stuck on that term, I, I think I may agree, but I do think the position of the film is that AI really could be viewed as an evolution of humanity too. Like there is this really clear, I think idea that we think that the idea that AI is programming and therefore not human. I think the film's like not necessarily challenging that, but challenging whether or not AI is capable of something like humanity, right? So I think the film's position is is that what happened was well, it's it's kind of almost a throwaway line, right? But but you have Ken Watanabe's character at one point saying, you know, this whole war and this whole like genocide of AI began because some human made a programming error in a robot that accidentally set off a nuclear yeah. weapon, and it's really humanity's fault that that happened. But even though it was humanity's fault, now they're on this crusade to eradicate AI across the globe. And that sort of prejudice and that rate and that sort of racism, in a manner of speaking, is. It, it, you know, is problematic because. AI has evolved in a way where it's quite like it, I think it, it asks the question, if not rhetorically, then like very vaguely about are are these AI capable of feeling things of human emotion right there's like these convert like i think john david washington's character taylor has throwaway lines like they don't actually feel anything it's just programming and that yeah. may I mean, and i think the the film does not take the time to like fully fully engage with that head on but i do think the film is sort of asking questions which you know it, pretty amazing that it's relevant four years after the film was written i believe this film began development in 2019 so it's pretty pretty um, I think pretty cool that it's asking those types of questions. I wish that they had like sort of shrunk down like the massive epic feeling of the film and asked more about those questions. I'm not a screenwriter. I don't know how to, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and suggest I know how to do that effectively, but it seems like some sort of smaller scale story that isn't necessarily about like the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Although maybe that's an exaggeration about what the film is actually about, but sort of this, this notion of like the smaller story that is sort of attacking the relationship between Taylor and his, you know, former wife, Maya, which is who is played by Gemma Chan, as you noted. I think there's something there and there are some relevant questions being asked, but I do agree that I, I'm not sure it has anything necessarily constructive to, an, to like as an answer to those questions more that it's just asking, do we really think AI is incapable of humanity and are mm -hmm. not worth, you know, conceiving in that way? And maybe the answer is no. I actually think it would have been super interesting personally if we're talking about like the sat like the satisfactory or the satisfaction of the end of the film. Because I, I share your sentiment that I didn't really find the ending super satisfying. I actually think it would have been super interesting if the end of the movie is Alfie like dying, right? Like the death of this weapon and like something with Taylor here that has to like be figured out. Like I think that would be a super interesting end of the movie, personally. Obviously, maybe dissatisfying like in, in like a in like a feel good dimension because obviously yeah. the end of the movie is supposed to make you feel good about about everything you know good guys you know good guys won or whatever um 
I think it would have been super interesting to have it not in that way and have you really sit with the prejudice and the racism of humanity against AI. If that is, if that is like the position of the film, which it seems like it kind of is. And I'd be, I'd like be really curious how people would react to that. I think that's like a much more provocative um, conversation starting into the film, but that's not what we got. I understand why, but that's also why the end of the film, like the last 10, 15 minutes when they're going to nomad and like blowing up nomad, sorry, spoilers. It it just sort of feels, it kind of feels tacked on at the end. It's like weird. It's like a really fast, like final, act of the film yeah i don't know it feels very strange i think i was really hanging with this movie for a while in its narrative development but i I think as soon as it started to engage the uh the sturgill simpson character in (laughs) in the in the amazing that he's in this movie yeah 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 that he's also gonna be in killers of the flower moon i believe yeah anyway back on it i just i think that that is a very i started not to necessarily lose interest that's not the way i describe it but I started to lose like a little bit of faith that I was going to really, that it was going to really deliver on sort of the promise of the early world building and the setup. I think for me, it was like around the time Ken Watanabe showed back up. Um, I think that was a point. So shortly after when, yeah. Yeah. Where, when the movie kind of took a turn into that more um, monotonous stage of the film, I guess, before. Because yeah. it came, it became much more bombastic at that point, right? Like yeah. it just sort of, sort of set piece after set piece. And you're not even really sure what the whole point was. I mean, again, we're talking, I already mentioned spoilers. So I'll just keep going with spoilers. But like the fact that Jim and Chance care, like he was like very explicitly lied to at the end of the film and he was being recruited by Ralph Ennison. I think he kind of suspected that early on after everything sort of goes south and, and sour there. But the fact that yeah. she was like never even alive to begin with, she's been in a coma for five years or whatever. Like it sort of was almost glossed over at the end almost. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with you on that. I do think, though, like some of the other plot t- twists are like pretty predictable, like the fact that Jimma yeah. um, Chan, you know, is revealed to actually be to be Nermada figure. But then they also like he... sort of turn around that she was like she was Nermada at the time you knew her, but her father was Nermada before he died. Yeah, and, like, but then like, he like, died what? and like she was the heir, I guess, is the idea. Yeah, and then yeah. Of, and then of course, and and this was kind of like again when I say it's predictable, I, like as soon as like the Alfie character shows up, I'm like, well, that's obviously his kid. Like that's the kid. That, oh yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That Maya was carrying carrying when you know she was supposedly nuked, and we 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 learned that it kind of is like that basically it sounds like she used like the cells of like the unborn child or something to create uh, that was my understanding of what what ex- exactly happened and how alfie came to yeah be. like she lost it was she, I think she actually, lost the child or they yes, lost yeah i don't so, actually wait i'm not sure i don't actually know uh, well yeah my my recollection was and i did see it last night my recollection was that they like i, I don't think DNA. the child survived I think, yeah, that she used like the cells or something of the unborn child and was able to create basically. But all this happened genetic... before, before the bomb. I was th- I was trying to connect it to the bomb, but this happens before because she never wakes up after the after the nuclear attack. Right. So this is yeah. all happened okay. when she's pregnant. Like she takes yeah, yeah, yeah. the DNA. She somehow the st- is able to. Yeah. 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 The ge- yeah. Genetic. We're back. Then. We're so back. I remember it's not just six <laughs> films ago. We're so back to Friday yeah. night. Yeah. But anyway, some of that stuff you can definitely. I think the movie telegraphs it quite a bit. Um, but then, yeah, she's in a coma. There's almost, like, again, there's there's a not very, like, there's a scene where 
you know, he takes her off of life support, essentially. Mm -hmm. That, like, should be a big emotional high of the movie. And it, like, it just isn't. It just, like, again, it just kind of falls flat. And I just felt that the movie wasn't able to take its time with this emotional stuff again, maybe because there was so much else, so much other work that it had to do. Scott, I do want to talk briefly. We talked a lot about high level and even more uh, than that thoughts on the movie, but I do want to talk for for a moment about the performances. John David Washington, you know, is back. Last time we saw him was in one of the worst films that we've seen in quite a long time. Amsterdam and he, he was I think we were in, in agreement that he was probably the worst performance in that movie as well unfortunately um, yeah I think he was yeah but obviously he's somebody that we've had stock in you know he was great in Black Klansman he was great in Tenet um those kind of being his two big credits to date um well Malcolm and Marie think? I mean that's another big Malcolm credit. and Marie yeah, yeah. sure uh, he he was you know fine in that movie but that movie is you know is what it has it is. A, that, that that movie has bigger issues yeah yeah. But this is another sort of starring role for him, you know, like a mo- a, a role that is given to somebody who is a movie star, right, um, yeah. to lead this movie. And he he plays alongside Madeline Univoyles, as I mentioned, um, as Alfie. Supporting cast includes, you know, we've mentioned a lot of them, Ken Watanabe, um, Ralph Innocent, Allison Janney, playing sort of very against type in her role as like this military um you know, officer who wants blood. She's um, cooking. Wilson, she's kind of she's yeah. kind of cooking in this movie. Yeah, she goes for it. She goes for it. I mean, yeah, yeah she never disappoints. I don't think. Sturgill Simpson, you also mentioned, is in the movie. Jimma Chan briefly as Maya. You know, talk about John David Washington, I guess, and then if anyone else stood out to you. Yeah, I, I sort of thought he returned to showing how, like, that he was a capable leading man. I mean, obviously, I think it's safe to say with experience and tenant, he's going to be. My at least like mildly comfortable in this more action focused sci fi type role because that is more or less you know he basically played a spy, uh, in an action movie in Tenet at, at its very core, and he's you know doing something similar as a sort of special ops, um, you know, individual who's tasked with you know, he has these military skills and he's tasked with escorting this kid basically. It's a uh, it's you know, not dissimilar to something like The Last of Us, to be honest, I guess. And sort of a lone and any other sort of lone wolf and cub type story. But I think he's he's very capable. I I do think that his relationship with Alfie, as you sort of were alluding to and talking about earlier, is a big issue in the film. I kind of and maybe this is like bad of me. I kind of feel like it's it's on Alfie, though. I feel like this that that whole character is not one that I got super invested in for you know i don't really i'd have to really sort of maybe dig in and explore the reason why that might be the case so i don't for better or for worse blame john david washington for that so i don't i don't lay the blame at his feet so and i don't think he was able to check all the boxes in this film for that reason he wasn't able to sort of create that sort of chemistry and connection with his you know with his co-star in the film maybe i don't blame him for all of that but I think that is a mark against him in the in the movie, but this is definitely a huge step up back in the right direction from something like Amsterdam. Yeah, no, I think he shows that charisma, um, and you know he tries to show the a little bit of vulnerability here too in his relationship with um, with Alfie. You know, take it or leave it, whether it works or not. I, I think maybe I agree with you that 
the Alfie character, you know, feels a bit one note, like she is kind of your standard child figure in these types of movies, right? Like, well, she doesn't say anything for a while. And then when she does, it's kind of like these very, you know, well, it's very robotic, pro- right? Like, frankly, profound very... insights, right? About like, um, yeah. you know, humanity and, and, oh, I'm, I'm a robot. Like we are, you know, we deserve respect. We feel things to like all that, you know, very sort of generic, like dialogue. I think you would expect in this type of movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think to, to what you're saying right there, like, that's the problem. Like, the child feels like a robot yeah. throughout the whole movie. It's acted like a robot. I have the full, like, I mean, I believe that that was the intention. Like, I don't think there was, mm-hmm. like, some mistake. Yeah, but then you get to this moment at the end of the movie where they're, like, in the escape pods or whatever, and yeah. they're telling each other, I love you. And it's like, this movie did not earn that moment at all. Like, uh, I, I just think that the 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 wrong turn in this film for me which eventually leads to what you're like exactly the moment mm-hmm. that you're describing like the wrong turn is is just like having this premise where like ai have humanity but then like you play your child robot who you're supposed to like have this connection with that sort of is going to prove that ai has humanity as like not totally robotic kid. yeah yeah like that that's the thing because you, you're talking about how like it, it has a lot of the tropes of like standard chill like children in movies and I, I see where you're coming from there but the problem is like honestly this doesn't seem, feel like a human child to me it doesn't feel like a human child to me at all and that's i think ultimately like there's I, like i'm not getting endeared to this figure like the film wants you to be but i'm just not getting that and i feel like there's like a miscalculation in there because they obviously want you to feel something very strong at the end of the film when that's happening. Like they want you to feel like Alfie is this, you know, basically a human child. They want you to feel that, but I'm just, you just, I had a hard time getting there along the way. And I think part of it is because of the way that they crafted this Alfie character. I know we were talking about John David Washington. I just started talking to something different, but that's that's... that's where the hangup really, it felt like Mm -hmm. for me, even in sort of like the, the really promising early stages of the film. And then it sort of diverts away from, what I thought would have been the linear sort of next step in where the film was going. Yeah. I think, I think you're, you know, you zeroed in on maybe a big issue there with why the movie doesn't work. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, like you said, I think every, every thing in that performance by Madeline Univoils is intentional, but um, it feels that way. It just, yeah. It doesn't come off the way that I think the movie intends it to. So um that's unfortunate yeah supporting cast is fine i think um you know allison janney always makes the most of her screen time uh, look I, I don't know if it was a good performance but she certainly was like trying to cook something up you know what i mean like yeah, she's, it, yeah. it's something that i will remember about the movie you know a couple of months from now and i don't know how much else about this movie that i will remember to be quite frank um, like kind of crazy that she's in this yeah like i yeah i didn't even know she was in the movie like when she shows up i'm like what the hell yeah, and again, it's it's a very against type part for her. Her death, her spoiler, her death feels very anticlimactic. is is another moment. In, I don't even remember when she died. Guy. When did she die? Uh, basically, they it, it's it's right after Nirmada has uh, well after Maya they've oh, taken right. her off life support. Yes. She comes in and tries to use the like Ken thing to like, shoots, shoots her. Yeah. Well, no. So. Um, 
Oh there's no, he you know he hits her with a grenade. He hits her with a grenade. And, yeah, the stick. And grenade. yeah, and um, what's her name? Alfie is like uses her powers Holding to that. stop everything from going off. But then the soldiers try to like kill her, and so she breaks out of her you know powers, and yeah. the bomb blows up. So um, again, very anticlimactic kind of. But that sounds like a cool death when you say it out loud. But I mean, clearly yeah. I forgot about it already. So. It's just because so much, like so much, is happening so fast at the end of this movie, right? Like, it's just like it is so quick. Yeah. The last I half hour enjoy, of the film, I did enjoy the scene where she's on the bridge with like the big walking robot thing yeah. or whatever. I yeah, thought yeah, that yeah. was pretty cool. Um, you know, again, there's everything looks really good in the movie. I, oh, and a lot of you know, again, we criticize with Marvel movies and stuff a lot when there's a dark scene or a nighttime scene just like how drab it looks there's a lot of you know scenes there's a lot of you know nighttime dark scenes in this movie and i i felt like um you know i was everything was very clear and um you want to know why scott is i'm pretty sure all those things were shot like on location where they shot this film yeah like outside imagine that imagine not using a green screen to do this this stuff but to be fair um, marvel's not even using green screens that much anymore they're using the volume or whatever but yeah Right, whatever their their version of that is, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, we've talked a lot about the the technical aspects of the film. Were there any other sort of set pieces, action scenes, any technical moments that stood out to you, Scott? Yeah, I just think it's worth highlighting again that the film looks really good. Nomad as as a concept and an object, I think is really cool. Like the, this mm-hmm. notion that the U.S. has spilled, spent a trillion dollars, which, by the way, is uh, like 500 times what they spent on the nuclear bomb or whatever. <laughs> they, I think they built the the nuke in Oppenheimer. Like they're ta- I think it was thrown as like a throwaway line where it was like two billion dollars to build a nuclear weapon at that time to invent it, to invent it mm-hmm. and build it. And the notion that they spent 500 times that to build a, you know, a, a mobile aerospace defense weapon to nuke half the world um so ai doesn't exist anymore it's like kind of like fundamentally hilarious obviously in like a really grim way but i do think the design of of that sort of base that weapons base is really cool and even though it's super fleeting like the the finale that sort of set climactic piece that's set on nomad like they have like whole like biospheres there that's like they're like growing crops and stuff. It's like kind of crazy that there's this sort of designed spaceship that's also like this huge weapon that it feels like this would have been really fascinating to spend more time with. I'm not saying I wanted the film to necessarily go that direction, but the world building element of that, like having that space sh- space station, having this sort of the the mystery throughout the film of this, like it's this massive thing up in the sky that can nuke people from outer space, you know, pretty much instantaneously, more or less. I think that's like a really cool feature of the film that that is sort of present. And I think that's one of the the sort of looming specter of that. Like, yes, Alice and Janney's character is the villain, but Nomad is the weapon that the villain is using ultimately. And I think that that's like a, actually a really cool feature of the film. Yeah, and one of the thing I think better scenes is the initial sort of siege, I guess, when they when they arrive for the first time. Um, 
with Taylor, you know, trying to secure and destroy the the super weapon, and uh, sure. they basically only have so much time to yeah, like thirty try to accomplish this. Yeah, yeah. and um, it ends up running out. Um, and you know, there's this ticking clock element, which I think you know makes that one of the more again standout sequences probably in the movie. Although the stakes don't quite end up being as high, I guess, as they make them out to be. Very because, few like, people died. Yeah, exactly. The, crazy, the strike actually. happens, but like Allison Janney survives. Several uh, of the other members of the team survive. Yeah, yeah. Like Mark, is it was it like Mark Menchaca's character survived? Yeah, yeah. Well, he's the one who ends up, I think, on the, dying later on the right? bridge. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I don't know who but, was who. Mark Menchaca's character was the one who like shot Alfie on the bridge, right? Or was that a different character? I don't know. I th- I thought he might have been the one that they like he, that John David Washington like carries into the house and he dies and then you might Allison be right. And he comes and uses like the brain thing on him or whatever. No, you're. I think he, you might be right about that. Maybe there's another. We we've discovered another issue with the movie, right? Which is sort of the bunch of the nameless sort of military type dudes who are the the antagonists in this movie. Outside of Alice and Janney, not anyone really strikes a chord. I would say. Yeah, um, to to me on the sort of the last like set piece point because I know we're about to move on. I think mm-hmm. you you highlighted the sort of strike mission early on, sort of like the infiltrate and capture and and extract type type mission. I was sort of one of the standout sequences in terms of building tension for me was and this was sort of the one of the final points of the film before I sort of started to really feel almost what you were describing with like feeling disengaged from the movie. But when they're in the apartment is like, I don't know if it's the apartment or whatever um, in the capital city, whose name I I'm sorry, I do not remember, but they're like in the apartment and John David Washington is talking to Sturgill Simpson and Alfie goes up with whatever Sturgill Simpson's like AI wife, yeah. wife or whatever. And they're like infiltrating in with, with to retrieve, and extract out like I thought that was a really cool scene. And like, even though it escalates from the rest and like in the rest of the movie to these like bombastic, huge set pieces where like you, you have the point where there's they, they like call in back at one point. And there's like this big ominous thing. And they're just these like the biggest freaking tanks I've like, ever seen in uh-huh. your life. And I'm just like, what is the point of this? <laughs> it's just a massive tank. It's like, ironically, I think the film does the smaller set pieces better. And that's why it starts to lose track of itself at the end of the film when everything's going at a super fast pace and there's these massive set pieces happening with Nomad, with these tanks that I was talking about, um, you know, nuking like the the HQ of the AI, of Nermada, the AI like base, like all that stuff starts happening. And I feel like that's where you start to lose connection with the characters a little bit when all that's happening yeah. and things happen too quickly. And these smaller set pieces are more effective. And I think that is just a, to speaks to the point of the fit that I was saying earlier that, a smaller scale st- sticking to a smaller scale would have benefited the film, I think. And that's an interesting point. Cause I think if you think about rogue one, right again, Gareth Edwards last movie, yes, it's this big star Wars film, but in a way it is a smaller scale story. I think within the star Wars universe, because it's the story of this insular group, right. Of, of people. Um, and like, it's very clear what their task is. Um, and the movie has a clear you know beginning middle and end point and i i just think that um maybe it shows that um gareth edwards 
he, he maybe he's a little stronger when he has some restraint. Whereas here, you know, he was given a lot of free reign, which is something that we want directors to be be given. That we want creators to be given. Uh, he was given a lot of free reign to, um, you know, realize his vision for what this was going to be, and maybe it just got away from him a little bit. Um, or I do feel the like fact that Rogue that, One had big set pieces, though, right? Like, I mean, Scarif is a huge set piece at the end of the film. Yeah, no, that that's probably that's probably a fair point. I, I guess I was thinking more from a a storytelling perspective, but yeah, um, I think yeah, action wise, it's a Star Wars movie. Like, it has big yeah. set pieces. But um, anything else to add here, Scott? Before we sort of move into the the wrap up, I feel like we've covered a lot of. The movie and sort of maybe where it falls short a little bit yeah i mean i feel like I've, I've tried to be pretty fair on this one there's stuff that that does work for me in this film i mean i know we said it at the beginning but the film's i mean the film is gorgeous it's really well well made well shot i think you can clearly see get like and sort of like almost validate what gareth edwards is clearly very good at but i think the thing that you're talking about there maybe someone else to write a script for him maybe someone to sort of give him a little bit more like almost enable him to be more restrained in his filmmaking while still sort of harnessing those things that he's clearly very good at. And he's obviously very good at collaborating with his, uh, you know, more like his visual effects, his cinematography, his sound design, like all those things are, are things the film does really well. And so I think there just needs to be some sort of arrangement or setup where he's able to have one side of the house taken care of. I don't know if he's interested in having that side of the house taken, as typical maybe with with people who write and direct their movies, they might be very uninterested in not writing their own films. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and I don't want to say that it's very, it's like super easy to disconnect those two things. I recognize that maybe some of the reasons why he's so good at these certain elements of the film is that he has thought about it from start to finish. And so I don't want to necessarily be reductive of that. But someone who could maybe help hone that story a little bit more and enable him to to sort of double down on the things that he's clearly very talented at. So the, the film is really not a total miss for me, but obviously in some of the core story narrative elements of the film, it, I felt like it made some wrong turns. I don't know if I have much more to add than that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Scott. I uh, was wondering sort of as you're talking there what Gareth Edwards might be working on next, right? So this was sort of a one for him. You wonder if he's going to go back and do sort of a, a one for them type approach next and do another you know ip related movie but he only has one film in development right now it's a film called forever it's another movie that he's writing and the the synopsis of the movie is set in a futuristic world ruled by robots a young human child searches for the origin of humanity um uh -oh. so doesn't sound too dissimilar from this movie uh, it, it's clear I guess where his interests lie in terms of the types of stories that he, he he wants to tell, but maybe he will have more success if he's able to to get this forever film made. It'll be interesting to see maybe where it ends up after the way that this film is performed. But um, there yeah. you go. Keep an eye on that. I mean, All right, it, Scott. it's safe to assume that it's going to be some sci-fi project, whether it's original IP yeah. or whether it's you know a studio job with with a known IP. You know, who knows if he'll make another movie before he makes this forever film, if it ever gets made. But, I mean, the man's pretty much exclusively made sci-fi. I, I don't know if Monsters is sci-fi or not. I'm not familiar with that movie, but I assume it is based on the title. Um, like, he's only I mean, interested in sci-fi. He, like, yeah. made cameos. I think he had a cameo in a Star Wars movie. So, 
you know, obviously he made a Star Wars movie too. I don't mean to, to forget that, but it's just like he's clearly just only interested in sci-fi. So I think he's yeah, very talented. No. I'll be honest. Like I think he's quite talented. He is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like again, you look at uh, Rogue One and the fact that all that that movie went through, the fact that it is so successful. I I I feel in the end, um, I think probably speaks a lot to his ability, and he he righted the ship, but. Um, yeah yeah favorite scene or moment scott i'll be honest i think that my favorite scene is the opening of the film i think the opening couple shots not shot not couple shots like the opening sequence of the film where you have the opera like the i guess it's like another special ops team that john david washington is technically a part of but he is undercover of course as you mentioned with with maya with who we then learn later on is nirmada and that sort of sequence where you're first learning about his character about his relationship with Maya you you're you're sort of absorbing contextual information about Nomad right I mean the film starts like you got no idea what this thing in the sky is is doing or what it's for really I think maybe you get like some notion of it from like an intro sort of yeah I mean more or less right It, it is it absolutely is and then you see sort of the full power of that machine at the end of the sequence when it mm-hmm. new like it appears to nuke, although it didn't kill anyone, it seemed like. Um, <laughs> appears to nuke like the cohort of people who's like out in a boat into the water. Right. But I, I just remember the first image, one of the first images that I remember in the film is the I guess again, these special ops agents in the water with this de- like this nomad device overhead, like with the with the changing like light formations that I guess it's like scanning the ground or whatever. And I think that's like a very strong opening piece. And it really builds tension well in that scene because you don't quite yet really know who all the players are, what's going on, and it's very effective in that sense. So I think that's a real it was a real high point in the film for me. Yeah, and I I you know, I mentioned it already. I think I would highlight the sort of initial siege scene again, the action scene there, um, when they land and are trying to secure the weapon and you have the ticking clock element. Um, even though, like we said, the stakes don't end up being as high as we thought as you think in that moment. Um, I thought that was sort of a good contained action sequence there. And really, you know, highlights the the role of of Taylor, of John David Washington's character being sort of in caught in the middle, right, between humanity and the AI. Not, not only in terms of his allegiances, um, but the fact that, you know, he is a human, but as is revealed, he kind of is responsible in his own way for creating this AI child, right? Creating um, Alfie because he is her father in, in some sense. But anyway, I like that scene. Uh, let's put a score on it, Scott. What do you give the creator out of 10? 6.5. Yeah, I'm going to go with the 6.3. I'm right around the same as you. Um, I think it's a, it's a beautiful film to look at. Um, I appreciate all the effort and care that was put into it and, and hope that more films like this um, will be greenlit, um, but uh, definitely a lot of missed opportunities, I think, in the storytelling department there. All right, um, that should do it for our review of The Creator. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back. We have some awards news about a new Golden Globe Award that has been announced, uh, but more importantly, Scott, um, we are going to get an update from you from the New York Film Festival. We talked about it up top, uh, but we're going to hear about your experience so far with just sort of the opening weekend and a couple of the films that you saw. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, before the break, I teased that there's a new Golden Globe Award that has been announced. Uh, I mean, it's it's really funny that they're doing this, considering um, that, uh, as you pointed out to me, Scott, I, I don't believe that the Golden Globes have a, a distributor at this point. I don't believe any any network or any platform is has agreed to air the award ceremony. So it's funny that Variety report, reports this as, Oh, the Golden Globes is introducing two new categories, in fact, to its upcoming January broadcast. Where is it being broadcast at this on, point? I mean, presumably it'll be broadcast on someplace like YouTube, right? Or Twitch? I'm not yeah, even joking. I guess, like, that's like literally where, you, where it would be broadcast. Yeah. But the Golden Globes have fallen very far, Scott. Um, it's almost not even worth addressing them or acknowledging them at this point, if it ever was um, worth doing that. But, um, you know, just as sort of a eye roll type piece of news. I think uh, it's worth acknowledging here that they um, have added this award for cinematic and box office achievement. Um, this is going to be sort of a, a general film category. Um, it's going to have eight nominees from what it sounds like. And it's going to be films that have grossed $150 million or more. And at least a hundred million of those have to be in the domestic box office. Um, and then for streaming films, um, they're going to have some sort of other metric that they're not really saying to determine whether or not it, it has been successful enough to qualify for this award. Um, and of course, you, you know, know how the, many films the, have made more than $100 million domestically so far this year? More 11. Than, uh, 20. I'm sure a lot of them aren't good. Scott, I'm going to be honest with you. I think this award has been set up to give Barbie a Golden Globe Award. Like that feels like the obvious choice. Why wouldn't it just win Best Musical or Comedy, though? Sorry, like well, why couldn't the, it just win that? That is the thing, Scott. And this, they have they have said too that this is not going to preclude a movie from being nominated in the Best Musical or Comedy or Best Dra Drama categories. And that that is the problem with this whole concept. You know, it, the Oscars tried to do it several years ago when they said, "Oh, we're going to do Best Popular Film," and it is, you know, it is undoubtedly true that most popular films nowadays are significantly lower in quality than, you know, not popular films, so to speak. But um, films, there is still something indie. very condescending and nonsensical about singling these movies out as somehow being different. Uh, and as, you know, if a, if a, a box office film you know, is good enough, is, is it, you know, good enough in quality? Like it's, it's as if they're saying it's still not going to get nominated because it's a, a box office film. So we have to invent this new category so that these movies can be acknowledged, which is just, isn't true. Right. Like I think Oppenheimer, for example, you know, is one of the more most successful movies of the year and it's going to be nominated for everything. Um, and, you know, Barbie, I also think is going to get, um, some nominations, probably, you know, screenplay, something like that. Uh, it's still early in the game. But, you know, being a popular film certainly uh, does not mean that you are, you know, barred from being in the the general film categories. You just got to make a good movie. Like, that's really what it mat what matters at the end of the day. Like, why are we inventing this new category? I mean, it's obvious, again, that they're trying to capture mainstream audiences with this. But mainstream audiences aren't 
even going to be able to see the Golden Globes at this particular point in time. Although, you know, like you said, well, arguably it'll actually be the most YouTube mainstream, like yeah, it'll be the easiest to access, yeah. but no one will actually care. Oh, I think it's, I, I do think it's kind of strange. Scott, Scott, my take is that this is the Sound of Freedom Award, actually. Sound of Freedom oh, Award. Could you imagine? Melinda. I know. But, you know, it's like the number nine grossing film domestically this year. So I, that said, I also want to amend. I said there's 20 films this year that have grossed more than $100 million. Two of those films that have grossed more than $100 million this year are Avatar to The Way of Water and Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. So those two don't even count, I'd, yeah, I'd imagine. There are 20 so it's actually 18, 18 movies. Scott, you, 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 unfortunately, you undersold how many films, like you underguessed that, which made the impact of that, right? But at that point, if there's eight movies being nominated, Scott, I know that there's still more fall movies to come out later this year. But if there's eight movies to be nominated, there's only 18 films that have grossed more than $180 million in yeah. domestic box office this year. And again, that's a joke. Most of these movies suck, too, probably. It's, it's you know, Quantumania and, you know, Thor, whatever the last Thor was called. Well, Thor and was last year, but nice try. Was it really? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't even yeah, yeah, know yeah. anymore. No, it's the, the Marvel movies this year are Quantumania, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3, right. and it's going to be the Marvels when it comes out. You know, another right. month, which month I won't so. be seeing either of those, but sure. Um, but I'm saying, but then there's the Flash, and then there's Aquaman at the end of the year. Although I don't know what that like. The Golden Globes are so early in January. Like, how do you nominate films that haven't like come out yet? Like the color purple, presumably is going to not going to. I mean, gross more than 100 million dollars domestically. Look, this is going to be like you know, again, it's going to be Barbie. It's going to be like across the Spider Verse. It's going to be Barbenheimer. It's actually one nominee for Barbenheimer. I mean, yeah, like yeah. it it it's going to to piss me off to no end when. Greta Gerwig finally wins. I was going to say a major award again. It's not really like the Golden Globes have fallen so far, but still, I guess, you know, you could still consider it a major award. Greta Gerwig finally wins a major award for something, and it's going to be this freaking best box office achievement or whatever for Barbie. Um, I'm going to be punching air when that happens. But um, Well, Scott, she yeah. won a Critics, a Critics' Choice Award. But not a major award. Again, uh, a I'm major kidding. award. <laughs> I know, I'm just messing with you. I, not, I, I don't care about a, an award, frankly, that was voted on by, you know, these non-accredited people on uh She did win an Indie Spirit Award. I don't know if you count that as a major film award, but she did win an Indie Spirit I mean, Award I did, for Lady yeah. Bird. I mean, she won That's that fair. for Lady Bird, so, yeah. That's fair, but, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm thinking mainly of Oscars and Golden Globes, but... Um, and SAG, but unfortunately, maybe the real takeaway. Well, she can't win a SAG award, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, she could because she, you know, she she can't I, for I, Barbie but, but for the for the uh, films yeah. you're talking about. Though she can't she can't win a SAG award, but maybe yeah. you're talking about. But anyway, Scott, um, I think we've said all there, all that is worth saying, probably about um, the the inanity of this being a thing, um, and hopefully, this will be the last that we say about. It and maybe about the Golden Globes for maybe. the next few months. It probably won't be. But Netflix uh, already picked their horse, right? They're doing. Aren't they doing the SAG Awards? Is not that <laughs> like either next year or this year? They're, yeah, they're no, to broadcast the SAGs. They are like last year. I think they actually they did it on YouTube. They, they partnered with YouTube, right? And they are yeah. on YouTube. But yeah, yeah, it's going to be on Netflix this year. So um, good for them. My name is Scott Harvey, and I'm an actor. Um, all right, sure. over to you, Scott Scott Shelton. Um, you have you. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. I wasn't sure who you were who you were throwing it over yeah. to. <laughs> I just felt like you know it logically followed from me saying my full name, but um, yeah, 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 yeah. Over to you, Scott. You know, again, we talked about you did see a few films on the opening weekend of it the did. New York Film Festival. Um, obviously, we don't want to get into spoilers too much, not just yep. for our audience, but for me too. That sure. I've I've only seen one because you're, of the you're films. an actor. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've only seen one of the films that you saw, Scott, which was uh, the the Pedro Almodovar short film. But um, sure. but yeah, talk about what you saw, what you liked, you know, general impressions. Yeah, look, I, I sort of teased it at the outset that I, I was pretty keen on a lot of films that I saw this weekend. I, I did have the fortune of seeing six movies. One of those was the short film A Strange Way of Life from Pedro Almodovar, as you mentioned just now. The other five were the John Le Carré documentary by Errol Morris called P The Pigeon Tunnel, which, Scott, visually incredible film for a documentary. I mean, like doing some crazy stuff with mirrors and how they sort of set up the the visual display of the interview with Le Carré. So like very, th very good, like thematic visualization mm -hmm. of the things they're talking about in terms of, you know, obfuscation, deception, the world of spies um, and, and, you know, double agents and things like that. And just an infinitely fat, like interesting and fascinating topic. Even though most of the film, the documentary is an interview between Errol Morris and David Cornwell, who is the the real name of John Le Carré. It does have, it is based on a sort of autobiographical memoir that Le Carré wrote. Um, at, I believe is his last novel, which was called The Pigeon Tunnel. And one of the features of that is it's like kind of a bunch of vignettes about stories of his life and what inspired him. But it's sort of um, bookended by two un like stories unrelated to him personally. One, well, actually, sorry, I guess the first one is related to him. The second one, less so. The first one is about when he was younger and he would be taken to these sort of like estates where there would be um, sort of like game game shooting based like shooting that happened out uh, very British a very British sort of fashion where pigeons would be sort of sent down this tunnel the pigeon tunnel you know the titular pigeon tunnel and then out into the, an open air space where people would aim and, and and try to shoot them and that is sort of one end or he's talking about sort of like the and that is becomes an infinite loop because the pigeons then return to their cages on top of the estate because they're trained to fly back there and they're sent back down the tunnel again. And it's this very repetitive process. Like if they survive, they just fly down again. And, and it is this kind of strange thing. So that's like one end of the film. And then another, which is this sort of anecdote that he has about sort of Hitler's second in command in like 1941 was flying to Scotland to try to negotiate some peace settlement. But like something happened. I think he, I don't know if he died or whatever it might have been. Um, but it's this sort of like strange fascination with fate and double agents and whether or not this was like commissioned or whether it was sort of a, a sort of a rogue thing happening. And I think that th these two vignettes are like very clearly very core and critical to David Cornwell as a person. And I think that it makes for an interesting sort of digestion of all these other, like really the rest of the movies about how his father, um, you know, treated or mistreated as it may be him and how he became the person that he was and sort of charting his life path through being a spy, his thoughts on the whole spy craft as like a, as a, as a, as a lifestyle. And really then a, a lot going back to his relationship with his father, just sort of constantly, you know, interacting and reinteracting with his father. Cause you know, his father lived through most of, you know, lived to an old, like a relatively older age. It's not like he died when, when, um, David Cornell was young and I, I just found the whole film super engaging. I'm not sure that, like everything really tied together super well for me. 
some of these notions that I, I, I can totally understand the first vignette, this notion of like spot, like just being a spy is this loop of like, you're almost seeking danger. Like you fly out, like you, you blow your cover, you go back in, you go undercover again. And there's, there's this loop of danger that you sort of throwing yourself into that. I think he found, you know, he, or I guess his argument is that people, the people who do that game find that seductive in a way. And, but then at the end at the vignette as well, I, the, 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 the sort of bookend vignette, I don't fully, it doesn't really fully tie together for me super well. So it, it didn't totally work there. And it is a bit scattershot because it is a lot of these vignettes sort of stitched together and, and these different stories, but it wasn't, I was never bored in the film and I was always engaged. And I think Errol Morris is such a competent documentarian, you know, interviewer. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you just look at his filmography and it speaks yeah. for itself. But yeah, I, I was really, I was really fast. I was really enjoyed the movie overall. It's not going to be near the top of my list. I don't think in the festival, unless, you know, I get some big disappointments later on, but uh, an enjoyable film that I would definitely recommend. I believe it's on Apple TV plus it's an Apple TV. It's an Apple film. So it will be available widely on Apple TV plus when it comes out. And, you know, Scott, I think that you would find it interesting at the very least. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even know that this movie existed until I saw that you and Paul were watching it, but I mean, Yes, it's an Errol Morris documentary. You know, he's one of the most significant documentarians of the last 30 years. So um, yeah. it's an event in that regard. Uh, so I would like to check it out for sure. Yeah. And he had one of the most unbelievable roasts of an audience question during the Q&A where this woman asked him what he thought about whether David Cornwell was withholding. It's one of his, sort of the final moments of the film when he's asking him a, a penetrating question. And Errol Morris was like, my favorite type of question. What do you think? Do you ever withhold information from someone when you're talking to them? I hope to God he's withholding information from me. And it was just like total roast of this yeah. woman who asked the question, well, he, which was like unbelievable. <laughs> he definitely doesn't hold back. You know, his probably his most famous film is The Thin Blue Line, which was yeah, uh, totally. kind of seen as one of the the godfathers of true crime storytelling. However, he has a lot of thoughts about uh, where true crime is today and like sure. the people who, you know, are, are big true crime heads. And, you know, obviously they're not positive. Uh, so he, well, he, well, the media has sort of been debased by this point, right? Yeah. By, oh, by yeah. now. Yeah. Thin Blue Line. I mean, he did three years of of, you know, reporting or documentary, you know, documenting on that. And he literally saved a man's life from execution and the making of that film. And now you have people doing like, you know, trash Netflix series for four episodes talking about, you know, someone being brutally murdered or whatever and just sort of dredging it back up. The. I guess like the morality of the of the field of true crime has evolved quite a bit from him. I, I mean, I probably doubt he'd even describe what he was doing as true crime. It was yeah, more, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, it was more invest investigative work. Very much so. And I think most true crime is maybe fashions itself as investigative, but questionable at best, maybe. Yeah. Anything so I, I felt comfortable talking about that film in more detail because mm -hmm. it's a documentary. It's a little bit different. Um, I did see five narrative films, a strange way of life. It's a short film, right? Pedro Almodovar. It's very like soap, uh, like Spanish soapy, like melodrama. It's, yeah. I think it, it's, it's just different. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I didn't. It, but it, but it was about what I expected it to be. I, I feel like Scott, you like went in and expecting the wrong thing. I read your review after I saw the film, and I just felt like you didn't go in with the right added like mindset of what the film was going to be. I don't mean that as a judgment against you, but like 
it seems like you were turned off by the by the almost like the approach of the film being very soap opera y and stating a lot of things, but it just like feels very like that's how you would do it kind of way for me. And that's not a statement on the quality of the film. It's just like it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. But it, it is sort of like what I expected it to be overall. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe El Motivar style is not not fully for me because I think But you like you know, Parallel Mothers quite a bit, right? I did, but I think my least favorite parts of the movie were like those more melodramatic sections. And I think this short yeah. leans pretty heavily into that, which is maybe what I was getting at. And in my view, maybe I did expect something different. I don't know, but it, it didn't, it didn't really work for me. It, you know, e- even a short film can feel well-rounded and it just, you know, it just kind of at the end, I was like, all right, that was it, I guess. Yeah. No. Fair enough. I mean, it's not, it's no big, it's no big deal. It's just, I, I was surprised how negatively you received it. Cause it just felt like about what I expected from the movie. That's not a statement of quality. Just it was about what I expected. Uh, sure. I mean, it's a 30 minute film. It probably, you know, if you, if you wanted to see a narrative feature, you came to the wrong movie. <laughs> you know, that's not directed yeah. at you. I yeah. just mean in general. And I, and yeah. look, I, I can certainly watch short films. I, I, there are another director has come out with some short films uh, in the last week or so. And I've, enjoyed very much the two that I, I mean, th- those are adaptations of 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 books that like yeah. short books though so it's just different than than creating something sure. from scratch but sure. anyway that was strange way of life final wrap-up of the day i saw foe i will refrain from talking too much about this movie not just because you haven't seen it yet and it might be coming out soon but this is like a film where you really should not have this film spoiled for you there uh you know I'll, I'll just leave it at that like a lot is happening in the film and i think part of the enjoyment of the film is piecing those things together for yourself and Saoirse Ronan, Paul Meskel, Aaron Pierre, I think all three of them are really, really good in the film. Saoirse Ronan is, is the lead. I'd say she has the, the biggest role. And the way this film ultimately ties itself up and, and, and wraps things up, I really, really liked. I really liked the ending of this film. I think it really worked for me. I do understand some criticism of the movie being a bit you know, opaque or dense or slow in the earlier goings, you know, in the first, you know, half or middle, middle third of the film. But man, critics were torching this movie over the weekend because it was its world premiere at the New York Film Festival. And I just simply, I just, I don't really get why, I don't really get why people were so negative on this movie. I think the acting's great. I think the story comes together really well. Clearly disagreement in the execution of the narrative and I didn't have as many problems with that as clearly some of the critics did, but I think there was a, like a, a lot of choices made on, on a knife's edge, right? Like it's, I think once you see the film, you'll understand what I mean by that. Like the, the, like the, the creative team here, the direction, the editing, it's all very intentional in, in what's being done. And for me, that's that did ultimately pay off at the end of the movie. But I guess for some people, either it didn't pay off or it didn't pay off enough to really justify some of the, like where, where how it sort of unwinds its, its narrative early on. But the quality of the acting kept me engaged throughout and sort of similar to what we're talking about with the creator, Scott, I'll be honest. I think the world building it being like a slight futuristic setting, kind of dystopic a little bit because it is sort of like the world is kind of dying. It's almost like a very interstellar like type premise of like the world is kind of dying and, and people need to, we need to explore our future in space is like sort of the premise of the film ultimately and then it tells a very like sm- unlike the creator it tells a very like a 
incredibly small interior focused narrative about you know these these two people, this husband and wife. So I'd really recommend it. Give this movie a chance. I think this movie is going to absolutely die with its reviews because it's an Amazon film. It's in theaters. A limited release starts this week. I mean, it bombed review-wise. I can only imagine it's going to bomb in theaters. Go see this in a theater if you can. If not, definitely watch it when it comes on Amazon Prime. I think it's definitely... I'm not going to sit here and say it's going to be in my top 10 or top 20 of the year, but I do think it's a really strong film. And Saoirse Ronan, Paul Mescal, I think, you know... These are two actors who shouldn't be missed. And Aaron Pierre is also a very strong performance in the film. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any reviews really that could deter me from seeing a movie with those two people as the stars. So I'm on board no matter what. That was my Saturday. Sunday, Boy in the Heron, Scott. I don't need to spill any mic time on Boy in the Heron. I went into this film knowing basically nothing about it other than maybe two images that I'd seen uh, of the film, two frames. And I was happy that that was the case. I wrote a pretty lengthy review on Letterboxd to this film. I did put a spoiler tag on it just because I think I would not have wanted to read any information about the movie before I saw it. If I don't think I have any any big spoilers in that review. I'll double check that and confirm that. But I will say, if you want to like go in the movie blind, it's Miyazaki. It's absolutely gorgeous. When you see the film, Scott, I think you're going to understand why it took so long for him to make and to animate. It really feels like a, a huge evolution, even from um, The Wind Rises in terms of his animation style. And I think you'll see that as soon as you start watching the movie. So a real triumph from an animation perspective, in my opinion. Uh, narratively, I won't say anything more. We'll have a whole podcast on it later this year. Our Miyazaki countdown series has already started in this feed. I think we've had as of time of release of this episode, I think we've had two. I think we've we've talked about Cagliostro and Nausicaa. So more to come on that front. I have so many thoughts about this film, um, but it ultimately I can say it did not disappoint. All I needed to hear. I mean, again, yeah. actually, I didn't need to hear, need to hear anything again. Like I'm gonna be yeah. seeing the movie. Obviously, um, stock was fully bought already. It. Did not need anything. Uh, yeah, I, I, there were never any never any doubt in my mind as really to what your thoughts would be. Scott, but. Yeah, and I guess as, as a closing thought on that, I will say I think we're going to have a great discussion about this movie in December when we talk about it. That aside, All of Us Strangers was the second film I saw. This is the Andrew Haig romantic drama film with Andrew Scott and Paul Meskel again. So big weekend for Paul Meskel at the New York Film Festival. Unfortunate, really unfortunate that He's had like three or four. He's had four movies at the New York Film Festival now, and he has not been in attendance for any of them, which is like obviously like a huge bummer in general. Like he had The Lost Daughter in 2021. Last year, he had After Sun. He was filming Foe, I think. So he couldn't be because he was like in Australia, couldn't couldn't come mm. for the appearance because that film uh, was was shot in Australia. And then. Uh, of course, he had both of these films this year in the right with the actor actor strike. He's not able to attend. So a, a huge bummer that he wasn't able to be there this weekend. Kind of like in foe. I think he's the second best performance in the movie. He is. I think he he is overshadowed by Andrew Scott, who is the who is the lead character in the film. But it, it's a very moving drama about more than I expected. I didn't know very much about this film. I honestly just thought this was really just like a gay romance film, but there's actually a lot more than that. There's a lot more drama in the film outside of the romantic angle 
uh, between Andrew Scott and and Paul Meskel. There is a whole I mean, I'd actually say like the, the core part of the movie is really Andrew Scott's character um, and working through his relationship with his parents. I won't say any more more than that, but there is a, a huge part of the film that's about that. In addition to exploring, not exploring his sexuality, because he's he's very aware and very comfortable with his sexuality already at the beginning of the film. But it was it is clear that he has not had many, if any, relation like meaningful relationships. Um, so it. it that is obviously a, a sort of a two-hander in the sense of two-hander in the sense of it's about his relationship with his family, and it's also about his relationship that's burgeoning with with Paul Meskel's character. So, I think that this film is is very emotional. It it doesn't necessarily connect with me a hundred percent because I do think so much of not so much. I'd say at least half of the movie really is for the queer community and having that and and really navigating those types of situations. I think the other half of the film, even in the context of Andrew Scott's character being gay, obviously still being a big portion of that. I think so many more like there's still a, a good number of of parts of the film that feel very like feel very relatable and resonant, even for someone who hasn't necessarily had that experience, just because I think some of the the relationships and interactions become universal in that it is like a conflict that feels familiar. But I do think that it, ultimately this is not necessarily a movie that's going to hit a hundred percent on me just because of the lack of experience. That said, I still was pretty emotionally moved by it overall. Last film that I saw last night, poor things got sort of the roller coaster of 2023. I'd say of, you know, it's Yorgos Lanthimos. It's Emma Stone. It's Mark Ruffalo. Look like, look at this, like Willem Dafoe, this crazy cast that we have here, by the way, Scott, if this makes you any better or not, Margaret Qualley also in this film. Don't know if that excites you at all. Did not know she was in the movie until I saw it last night. She showed up in the film. Uh, Christopher Abbott, Jared Carmichael, didn't know they were in the film either. They're cooking in this movie. Uh, so, the, like, you know, we're so back kind of vibe from the cast and, and knowing that. Then we saw, like, the promotional material. We, like, saw the first trailer, saw the shots, and we're like, man, maybe it's so over for this film. Like, it does not look good. Uh, I think we were pretty much all out on it at that point, Scott. But but then like then it came out at the Venice International Film Festival, so you know we're so back to it's so over. But then the it, it debuts and it, it has these rapturous reviews. It has good reviews, yeah. So we're so back again, and I'm just like I don't know what to I don't know what to think going into this movie. And my takeaway of the film, Scott, is that it's a very funny movie. I don't really know what all the hype is about at the end of the day. Like I'm not sure the film is much more than a very funny movie. Sort of like I think a lot of people talked about Triangle of Sadness last year. It is like a movie that observes things that are like, you know, it, it, it observes things well and makes comments. But it, it's it, like a lot of people complain that that movie's not really going a layer deeper. And I think that like that's going to that was sort of my reaction. I had a different reaction to Triangle of Sadness. I felt very, very strongly about that film. I liked it a lot. Um, this film, I, I had more of that sort of other side's reaction here where I was like, this is really funny. Like I'm enjoying this film. I saw this with a sold out theater at the film festival. I, I really enjoyed it, but the film's really long. It's two hours and 20 minutes. Just like triangle of sadness was a lot of comparisons here in my head for these movies that really aren't that similar. Um, and I just, I didn't really connect with what was necessarily more there. And I think that's okay. Like the film can just be a good, a really good comedy, right? To me in my mind. And, it's certainly very quirky. Is it forced? Maybe I don't like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's set in the sort of steampunk dystopia world of like the late 19th century. So it's like clearly a very different setting for the film. That's almost like, you know, part fantasy, part sci-fi, 
and Emma Stone's performance is good. It doesn't didn't really do a ton for me because I don't really care about the Frankenstein's monster of it all, which is like yeah. obviously what it's trying to replicate. But the but the ensemble cast here, like my like they're all really funny. Like Mark Ruffalo is hilarious in this film. Um, Jared Carmichael, Christopher Abbott. You can go down the list. Like the the supporting cast here, all registers pretty strongly. Not in like a they deserve an award kind of way, but in a way that like worked for like what the tone of the film was. And so my take on Poor Things is that it's a good movie that I really enjoyed watching, and it's not that much. It's not much more than that, but you know that is what it is, and I'm I enjoyed it. I mean, I will probably still end up seeing the movie, obviously, Scott, um, but it's not high on my 2023 watch list. Let me put it that way. Um, sure. And I mean, it sounds like it's going to get nominated for a bunch of awards. Yeah, so I mean, people are saying Emma Stone, you know, Oscar again, but I don't know. There's still a lot of movies left, but um, sure. yeah, obviously glad to hear that you liked it. It does. It does increase my interest in it, obviously, because I know that you're not necessarily in the bag for like the forced weird stuff either. So um, if it did, I think that, I think that, that it manages to come off in a way that's like because because you're absolutely right. But it's not being like indie art house weird, right? It's just being like comedy weird. You know what I mean? And like uh-huh. once you get in that mindset, like everyone's committed to this, to this like setting and this bit. And the and the film is like super immersive in that. Like the set design is comparable to something like like the production design is like comparable to Barbie, in my opinion. Like the production design of this film is off the charts. Like it's unbelievable. But and the the score, who's like a first time, um, I believe it's the first his first time scoring a film. I'm not remembering the guy's name last night, but the score is really is really impressive. The production design is is really impressive. Really, I mean, the film feels like a real achievement, but not necessarily achievement in a way that like, oh, this thing is going to be the most memorable film from the year. That's like not quite how you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it's uh, it's an accomplishment, but, you know, it's it's just a really well made movie, which is kind of how I felt about the favorite too. like this is a good movie, but like it doesn't really get over the line for me in a lot of ways and maybe that's where i'm at with yorgos like i enjoyed the film a lot but you know i haven't like really thought when any of his films are like masterpieces you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah no i think i'm in the same boat with you there although you know plenty of people would beg to differ there but um sure. yeah no uh that that all sounds great yeah all of us strangers uh is another one that i have on my watch list pretty high i'm looking forward to that one um so uh glad to hear that you enjoyed it as well and um tomorrow night i will be very very envious of you because i believe you're going to see hitman the new uh richard linklater film with texas rick himself in attendance so um yeah i may not speak to you tomorrow night but um i'll get over it eventually look Um, i'm just saying you know it's it's a it's a busy time at work i hope i'm seeing hitman tomorrow night i certainly hope you are too now, I, I, you know, I may joke about that stuff, I but I hope you get yeah. to see it, too. Um, I do. Um, all right, Scott. Well, I think that should just about do it for episode 250 of Some Like It, Scott. Where can our listeners find you on social media? At Shelton 2013 And I am at Scarby Dent on all platforms. If you, We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediapluggedpods. Uh, We have a bunch of tiers over there, but even if you can't 
support us over there. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And of course, we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the podcast next week. Uh, Until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.